0: Those bad actors then are able to create, it almost feels a bit like online guerrilla warfare, right? Where they come in and they lob something into the internet and then they disappear again, right? And that can just have such a, an emotional and a mental toll on the victims because they can't point to them and say, it's that person or that thing.
1: This is Lock and Code, a Mauerbytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about an unequal internet. In 1996, a man named John Perry Barlow penned what is still considered to be one of the most influential pieces on the promise of the early internet. This piece, titled A Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, came at a time when the internet was still exploding in potential, and also at a time when that potential was facing the threat of government regulation. Barlow, who eventually helped found Electronic Frontier Foundation and was also a lyricist for The Grateful Dead, a true story, fired a warning shot across the bows of what he called the governments of the industrial world, you weary giants of flesh and steel. And he pleaded, quote, on behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You are not welcome among us. And to really get the feel for this earlier utopian vision of the internet. I just have to read you some of this piece. Our world is different. Cyberspace consists of transactions, relationships, and thought itself, arrayed like a standing wave in the web of our communications. Ours is a world that is both everywhere and nowhere, but it is not where bodies live. We are creating a world that all may enter without privilege or prejudice accorded by race, economic power, military force, or station of birth. We are creating a world where anyone, anywhere, may express his or her beliefs, no matter how singular, without fear of being coerced into silence or conformity. Your legal concepts of property, expression, identity, movement, and context do not apply to us. They are all based on matter, and there is no matter here. Our identities have no bodies, so unlike you, we cannot obtain order by physical coercion. We believe that from ethics, enlightened self-interest, and the commonweal. Our governance will emerge. Our identities may be distributed across many of your jurisdictions. The only law that all our constituent cultures would generally recognize is the golden rule. It goes on like this for a bit, but Barlow eventually closes, saying, "'We must declare our virtual selves immune to your sovereignty.'" even as we continue to consent to your rule over our bodies. We will spread ourselves across the planet so that no one can arrest our thoughts. We will create a civilization of the mind in cyberspace. May it be more humane and fair than the world your governments have made before." And 25 years later today, right, I think we can authoritatively say it didn't work. It didn't work. Look, strictly from the viewpoint of government regulation on the internet, we've got quite a few restrictions, and countries like China and Australia have even tighter restrictions on things like encryption. But casting aside that libertarian dream that's deeply embedded in Barlow's declaration, Barlow's distinct vision of a fair, just, and equal internet, an internet that does not judge you based on who you are, that's also absent today. And that's because Look around you, or look around your internet, I guess, and recognize that the internet is a deeply unequal place for women and minorities online. As quick examples here, research that Maurerbytes did this year showed that women felt the least safe and the least private online, and there's probably a lot of reasons for that, because according to the U.S. Department of Justice, women also face disproportionate levels of cyberstalking Outside research also shows that women are almost singularly targeted by non-consensual pornography. And in much of the work we've done at Malwarebytes to protect people from the threats of stalkerware, we've learned from many domestic violence support networks that those threats often apply more to women than to men. The internet is different for women. And often that difference is bad. It can be a scarier, more threatening and more unpleasant experience. Today, We're asking why and what can we do to fix it? To help us understand these issues, we're speaking with Sue Krautbauer, Senior Director of Strategy and Development for the nonprofit Digitunity, which is an initiative of National Christina Foundation that works to lower the technology gap in communities that are lacking access to computers, the internet, digital literacy skills, technical support, and device repair services. Sue also helped Mauerbytes develop its recent report called The Demographics of Cybercrime, which looked at who is vulnerable to what cybercrime and how is it impacting their lives. Sue, welcome to the show.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to talk about such an important subject.
1: Yeah, thank you for coming on the show. We are so delighted to have you. And with that, like you said, it's such an important topic. Let's get right into it. It is a huge topic, too, right? It's it's just about an unequal internet experience for women. And so before we start immediately throwing out statistics, I think we should set up the conversation with a simple question, which is, do women have the same experiences online as men?
0: Well... It's interesting. So I come with the perspective not only of being a woman, but also having raised three daughters in the digital age. And I can, from personal experience, say that women do not have the same experiences online as men. We touched on it a little bit in the report, and that is the real world and the online world, it's no longer separate. And what happens in one impacts the other, and the demarcation between a person's real-life experiences and their experiences online are not separate anymore. And for some, and oftentimes more impactfully for women, the online world is more expansive and deemed more critical and important than their physical world. But yet, as we've discovered, what happens in one area affects the other, and what happens online for women can be frightening. Now, what do I mean by the online world is more expansive and deemed more critical and important? Mm-hmm. So if you if you take a, a look at, certainly through the pandemic, and you look at statistics, and I'm not going to throw any out yet, women have been coming onto the online marketplace in droves which is opening them up, not only from what I would call social networking, but entrepreneurial, online entrepreneurs as ever. When you think about things like Pinterest and Etsy and Shopify and coaching and things like that, all coming online predominantly or heavily populated by women entrepreneurs. And, and when you start thinking about the impact and the broadness of women moving onto into a multifaceted online experience that also opens them up to a lot more of what I would call bad actors. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. It seems that because there are simply more women online, there are more opportunities to encounter, like you said, bad actors. Can we just get some better understanding of of what that looks like?
0: In terms of bad actors, certainly. So it's a disturbing trend that the number of male violent crime victims in the U.S. has been steadily decreasing since 2005. Mm -hmm. But the number of female victims have been increasing exponentially. Women are slightly more likely to experience online suspicious activity than men. 33% 33% to 30%, but women are more likely to receive multiple suspicious text messages, 84% versus 81 as well as a whole lot of other ways that they are targeted now that they are online.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you started bringing up those numbers because they they should be discussed, right? And and I know that sometimes I, I hear statistics and I'm like, ah, uh, okay, can I really make sense of this? And what I want to do is I want to make sense of it for folks at home. Something that we found at bites through that report, right, the, the demographics of cybercrime, just pretty broadly here, we found that... Not nearly enough people feel private online. We just asked, hey, do you feel private online, right? And 50% of people said they do not feel private online. That number went up for women, right? It was 53%. And that number went down for men, 47%. So again, there's that that kind of schism there. I think importantly, though, we also just asked if people feel safe online. And 31% of people do not feel safe online, but 35% of women do not feel safe online. And again, that number is higher than than it is compared to men, and as you were saying, there are some things out there that, of course, like, of course, people do not feel safe online. And of course, women do not feel safe online. And there really is, as we found, there's that blurring between online life and real life. As an example, right, we, we mentioned a little bit at the top there that cyber stalking was more likely to target women, to more likely to affect women than it is men. Cyber stalking is not something that just happens on the internet. It's not something where you're like, oh, well, I, lo- I log off of my computer and then the cyber stalking's done. You know, like a lot of cyber stalking is committed through phones. It still is considered cyber stalking if you're doing something like texting someone or sending someone a message through online platforms. We don't live in an era anymore where you can just say, let me not have my phone on me, unfortunately. Like there are so many people out there for whom, you know, the phone is is not just something that they enjoy, but it is something that you need. You need it to interact. You need it to go to work. You need it sometimes to apply for a job. Sometimes it's folks-only device. And so I think this kind of conversation, we have to understand that, again, there isn't like online life and offline life anymore. The, the, the things are actually extremely related. Can you think of other things that that you've seen that that have this this similar theme happening?
0: when you specifically talk about stalkerware there's a lot of different ways that i'm going to say you know john q public or jane q public don't even think about they're not it's not even in their radar that these types of things can can be used or utilized or or installed by you know one random click on your phone text message or something and all of a sudden unbeknownst to you, something's been loaded into your computer and collecting information, identity, location, etc. And because women not only tend to be, you know, do the business as I spoke about, but tend to use connection, online connection as a, a way to socially connect with family and friends and and other things like that. They tend to, you know, potential, the potential for that type of abuse stalker to happen is incredibly high, I think. Yeah.
1: And and to just kind of explain stalkerware for folks at home who haven't heard about it, stalkerware is a term that we use uh, in the cybersecurity industry and, and also much more broadly to describe, uh, like you were saying, Sue, Applications that can reveal a dizzying amount of information about a person. It can reveal text messages. It can retrieve photos and videos on a on a phone. It can reveal GPS locations. It can look at web browsing history. It can do a. It can take control of a camera. It can take photos. It can turn on a microphone. It can record phone calls. These are worrying. These are dangerous capabilities, and they can cause so much harm. and the big thing is that a lot of these types of apps can hide themselves from view. They don't show up on your device. You can't like physically see them or they sometimes are disguised as like another kind of banal app, like a calculator or a system updater, which like isn't a thing. We do a lot of work on this stuff. Uh, we do like a ton of work on this stuff. And at Malwarebytes, right, we're not just doing this work alone. We're, we're partnering with other nonprofits, particularly, you know, the the National Network to End Domestic Violence. And like I said, you know, in working with them we've presented at their conferences. We've presented at multiple multiple conferences. The problem is particularly pronounced against women. These are threats that, again, are, are more pronounced against women. And like we said, this isn't a type of threat where you're just like, oh, let me turn off the computer and then my life is okay. It doesn't work like that anymore. It really sucks, honestly. I completely understand these numbers of why women do not feel safe online. The types of threats out there are horrible. Like, there's no other way to put it.
0: Oh, I know. As I had mentioned earlier, I have three daughters. And one of my daughters, we've been lucky, has not been cyber-stalked. This particular daughter, though, my middle daughter, decided to step off of the social platforms— because of exactly those types of issues. My oldest daughter, now very mild. So I want, I want to be very clear in saying that from A to Z or, or zero to 10, 10 being the most severe form of cyber stalking, right? That, that is not what my oldest daughter experienced but in a very mild way she did have an experience with some stalking and ended up you know having to block this particular individual from and change you know change the way change her own behaviors change her email addresses change her profiles Et etc so that she could stop the at this particular point the mild the mild stalking that was happening but it can go from that that zero to 10 in a very, very quick, it can escalate very quickly from a mild issue and a mild irritant to, you know, life-threatening, life-threatening, especially in, you know, abusive relationships with, I want to say bad actors again, because I don't want to point to anyone because they can come not just from men to women, but from women to men and, you know, Across the board, there isn't any particular one or another people group that hasn't, you know, been impacted by cyber stalking. But certainly, women are the largest and most predominant target of that.
1: Yeah, I, there was so much that you said there that I think needs to really be addressed, like you said, just the way you presented it, that you consider yourself lucky. You know, you consider yourself lucky that your daughter didn't experience something worse. And I think that's what people need to understand is that being online for women is bad enough that people who don't experience the worst of the worst, it's a moment to be thankful. It's a moment to be grateful. And I think that there are a lot of folks out there, myself included, right, who haven't had any of that type of interaction come my way, right? And I would never... It just shows like... The difference in in the frame of reference, right? If I had someone even presenting a, a mild issue to me, I would be furious, right? Like, I would be like, this is the worst. I would never feel like I'm grateful. And then I think, again, it's just look at the frame of reference. Look at what more people deal with. Look at what more people have to go through. And, like, when that's your frame of reference, it kind of really helps illustrate what women are dealing with online. Um, It is such a different thing. I think there's a lot of folks out there who have this, like, when you bring up this idea, right, of, like, women have different experiences online, there's a lot of, frankly, like, stupid ideas out there about, like, oh, like, it's just different in online dating. Like, it's just, oh, it's just different. Like, women have such an easy time, like, quote-unquote, easy time in online dating because they get, like, millions of messages and... That's the extent of some people's understanding of it, and that is not how it is. That is not true. There's a world out there, and it's scary. That's kind of it.
0: Yeah, so w- with your permission, I'm going to dig a little bit and, and flush that out for people that, that may or may not understand how insidious this is. Yeah. Women have historically been the predominant target of relational and gender-based abuse. And That goes through all time, but that holds true in the online world as well. Online abuse, as you mentioned, takes on many forms from violent threats and digital surveillance, which we talked about just, you know, earlier, to sexual harassment, to the sharing of intimate images without people's permission, to, I mean, online abuse can have a devastating mental and physical toll on women and girls. And as we know from past research, women of color, black women in particular, are disproportionately affected in cases of domestic violence, abusive ex-partners, also monitor, track, threaten, and perpetrate violence using these digital tools. And while, while many think of the more violent or invasive forms of abuse that I just mentioned, Also think, you know, and and I'm just thinking out loud here, like what's called image-based sexual abuse, which you might more commonly know as revenge porn, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or there's also something called morphing, where especially in these days of almost anybody can do digital, you know, it used to be that only graphic artists could do digital alteration, but now there's tools in place that morphing is putting a victim's face or head on the body of another person.
1: Yeah, yeah, we call them deep fakes. And that's, yeah, that's what it is, right? It's taking technology and putting someone's face on a body that is not theirs, which is another form of non-consensual pornography. The term that a lot of folks may have heard at home, right, is is this revenge porn, um, which is posting pornographic images because you're mad at someone? Like, it's, it's hard to explain in a way that's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, because it doesn't make sense. It is abusive behavior. But yeah, that's, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean when you think about it why and you kind of wonder but oftentimes these are done anonymously the anonymity of the of the perpetrator is you know with with fake profiles and you know you can't figure out who they are and they're there they post they're gone but the but the pictures or the abuse or the they're not they don't leave the internet right so i think sometimes those bad actors i keep calling them that because it just seems like the most without calling them out in 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 using language that should that you would have to bleep me out on. <laughs> but um, but those bad actors then are able to create it's almost it almost feels a bit like online guerrilla warfare, right? Where they come in and they they lob something into the internet and then they disappear again, right? And that can just have such a an emotional and a mental toll on the victims because they can't point to them and say, it's that person or that thing or that, you know, be, and, and and I think that sometimes that ambiguity of the anonymous or the guerrilla warfare, as I like to call it, online guerrilla warfare, really, really can mess up a person's mind, head, psyche.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think something that's also important in these conversations is particularly like something with, with non-consensual pornography. I don't know if people know this, but Sometimes those, those images or those videos, they are also posted with the person's name and the person's contact information. So there, there can be times when a video is posted with their name or their phone number or their address. This has been proven. This was found out actually in, in like a 2014 report by these two professors, uh, Danielle Keats Citrone and Marianne Franks, who do like fantastic work on stalkerware and on, like, tech-enabled abuse. Always try and name-drop them when I can because I I always rely on their research. But, But what they found, right, is that, again, these videos are posted alongside contact information and sometimes also with their real names. And think about what that does. Think about how these women can be subject to random phone calls, abusive phone calls from people they don't know because their number is out there online and they have no idea why or how it happened. Also, if it comes up with a name right it can show up in in like search results and that can obviously damage chances at at finding a career because everyone looks up who their who their candidate is and imagine if that's what shows up in the first page of google results it's so real like it's so tangible it's something that can ruin your life like that's it i wanted to move a bit here and i think there's Probably a lot of reasons why this is, and so maybe it's an extremely broad question. We could spend a lot of time on it, but but my big question here is is why? Like, why is this this the environment that women have to go through online? You know, what what can explain what's happening here?
0: So I talked about it a little bit a little bit earlier and and touched on it, and and I think it really and again, this is my take on it, and. I really feel it goes back to that statement I said that, that women have historically been a target of relation and gender-based abuse and whereby in years gone by, abuse being done behind the walls. And I know that there there are statistics out there that that there's been a spike in abuse since the pandemic because women were now quarantined at home but i also believe that gender-based abuse that pattern of abuse as i said before really escalates online because it's so much more difficult for the police themselves to track them down and make a meaningful change especially when you start thinking about the internet and internet is a is a place without borders right so in years gone by, you know, it was a neighbor and the local police could come and find the perpetrator or even if they went to a different state. But now we're talking about not only anonymous people, but but individuals that are coming across the borders. They're they're coming from other places in the world. And how does law enforcement really impact that? How does a woman fight against that, that broader global impact of opening yourself up to a, as you said at the very beginning, a a digital world that, that has no borders. I don't know what, what your thoughts are on that, but I, but as I ruminate about, you know, why, why, why it's large and it's huge and it's broad and it's almost like, like vaporware, you know, trying to find these people and they just kind of come and go. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's an interesting perspective here. Uh, and it, I, I'm glad it, that you honed in pretty quickly there on on what does law enforcement do? Because just from our work at Malwarebytes on on stalkerware, right? Specifically, again, those those apps that can provide near limitless visibility into someone's life without their consent. Law enforcement is still catching up, right? Law enforcement is still trying to find out how to address this. And sometimes something like that, sometimes what a individual wants who is being stalked who who has stock around their phone they're not coming to the police and saying get this off my phone they're coming to the police and saying stop the stalking behavior right because it's not just limited to this cyber threat sometimes people physically stalk them as well and so what they're saying is I want to stop the stalking behavior I don't care how it's done I don't care what legal regimes need to be used I don't care what laws have to be cited I just want it to be done and I have found in speaking with law enforcement that that it is difficult. Like it is difficult to do. There isn't always a, a targeted approach to the cyber problems that are so deeply entangled into real life problems. So that's, I think, definitely one perspective. I think another is that I think we haven't been taking it seriously. We know this is happening. We know that women are having a worse time online and we're still designing products. We're still rolling out features in a lot of our online platforms that can allow for abuse. I remember maybe a year ago, as just a brief example. I believe, and we wrote about this at Mauerbytes, uh, I believe Slack rolled out a feature that said you could message anyone in the world. And the way it worked is that you could you could message anyone in the world through Slack. And I, you know, I believe they had to have a Slack account, obviously. But it was rolled out in a way that there wasn't like a like a way to block someone. There wasn't like a block list. And it also was such that. It was like a friend request coupled with the message you sent. So there was no, to, no way to say, it wasn't first, hey, I want to chat with you. Do you agree? Here's the message. It's, hey, I want to chat with you as an invite. And it contained the message itself. And this can be abused. Like this can be used in a way to send harassing messages to someone who has said, I don't want that person to contact me. We see time and again, like you said, people changing their social media behavior you know, removing themselves from platforms. And imagine, imagine you do all that work and you say, I'm going to shut down or I'm going to lock down my Facebook. I'm going to change my Instagram accounts. I'm going to, you know, no longer have a, a publicly accessible Twitter. You do so much behavior change on your own, even though you're not the person doing anything wrong. You do all of this. And then, you know, without any planning whatsoever, a tool that you use for work, becomes another avenue for you to receive harassing messages from someone you tried to cut off long ago. And much credit to Slack. They they changed that feature within 24 hours, right? So we do have to give them some credit, but it is that kind of thing where it's like, we're not thinking about people's experiences in the way we should before we ship products. And I think that's one other part of this.
0: I think too, though, in some ways, David, it's context. It's, it's your own your own lived experience, you know, making no excuses. Right. And I'm so glad that they, they flipped that very, very quickly. They turned around that, that patch incredibly Mm -hmm. quickly. But if you're, if you're designing a product or a feature or an upgrade, or even as an individual, you're thinking about trying to download something because it's going to make your life faster, easier, better. And you haven't had this lived experience it's just not in your radar and i mean we've been talking about some really really nefarious type behavior but i also want to i also want to just be sure for the listeners of this podcast to to remember that not all forms of abuse seem like abuse in the beginning they feel benign they you know what i call more non-traditional things such as you know romance scams That are used to steal money or identities. And oftentimes those parallel the same type of long grooming process that more traditional child abusers or or other types of abusers use when they're grooming their victim. And so I just want to make sure we raise our hand here and say, you know, some of these seem like, you know, you think to yourself, oh, yeah, I get that. I'd recognize that. I don't really have to worry too much about that. And I just want to lift back up the the, the warning of being wise and thinking about things like that and making sure that you've, you're you protecting yourself in multiple ways, because if it's not in your lived experience, you 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 might not recognize it until it's it's you know you're you're well into it. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think that's such a good point because yeah, like we said, like like you said, we've been talking about a lot of nefarious stuff here that immediately presents as warning signs for a lot of folks. Really, I like you said, like oh, I could see that, I recognize that, I know what to do in such a situation. But like you said, there's a lot of stuff out there which is just starts as benign, starts as, like you said, these, for example, romance scams. And this happens, you know, folks reach out to people online saying that they are someone they are not, and that they love them, and they've always wanted to be with them, you know, and and it doesn't start immediately. It says, hey, I just, I'm interested. I I like your profile. And they're preying on individuals through a long period of time until they can just get hundreds, thousands of dollars wired over because they're in a you know quote unquote jam and the relationship has already been built online and and that happens really slowly. Like that's not, you know, that's not something that happens instantaneously. And and romance scams are a thing. Like they affect people every day. We can't ignore those kinds of things. I wanted to switch gears here a little bit and talk about access, right? Computer access, internet access, technical support access. All of you at Digitunity I consider you the experts on this, right? And so I want to better understand how does this issue of technology access affect people's experiences online too?
0: Sure, happy happy to talk a little bit about the work we're doing and, and, and how and why we feel this is so important. But just to give some context to your, your listeners, I'm coming at this not only with the, the Digitunity hat on here, but the fact of the matter is is that digitunity's been working on the digital inclusion space they've been working for, since 1984 on taking technology from its first place of use and making sure that it gets into the hands of those that need them starting You know, at our very roots with getting computers to folks with disabilities. And we really touch through our network. We have a network of nonprofits over 1500 across North America that are the frontline organizations that are working with, you know, elderly and women and children and the disabled and black indigenous people of color, you name it. We are, we are, our network is working on the front lines with, with a host of people to get technology into their hands so that they can become successful and access the things that they need. But I come also with my own technology hat and I have over 20 years of experience in the technology sector, software and hardware and services and technical support as well. So I just wanted your readers to understand that I'm kind of coming at it from a two-pronged approach here and kind of having seen this manifest in different ways. But for mm-hmm. us, we believe that our mission of getting computers in the hands of everyone that needs them and those would be typically you know marginalized vulnerable populations that opening up that world of opportunity in a digitally connected world, the internet access, the computer to be able to connect and get the better job and learn new skills and digital skills, and for children to be able to do online learning and students to be able to go off to college and and be successful. All of the veterans that are coming back in and are looking to upskill and change their skills they learned through their service to our country and then and then translate those into the business world all of those things are the reason that we believe that having a computer and ownership of that computer is so important but with it for us comes this realization that when we open that door to that digital world without borders we talked about earlier that there's a responsibility to make sure that folks understand that that it's not all unicorns and rainbows out there as well. And so to understand that that many of the people that are getting these computers are not digitally literate, they're not digital natives, they might be, you know, immigrants, etc, you know, first first immigrants, English mm-hmm. is a second language for them.
1: The U.S. government tracks this. We know that there are types of scams that specifically target English second language communities. This is something that happens. Again, I just feel like everything we talk about, every community we talk about, there is measured, there is reported, there is researched proof that they're facing different different experiences online and, and that they're facing scams at a different level. They're facing abuse at a different level. They're facing harassment at a different level. And I always just want to... Like I always just want to make people mindful of that. That your internet experience, you cannot assume that it is the internet experience of your neighbor. You know, you can't assume it's the internet experience of the person that works next to you at work. It just isn't. I wanted to wrap up with a final question here. How do we fix this? It's such a big issue. And I think when we talked about like why is it the way it is, I don't know if there's one answer to how do we fix it. So let's just try and tackle it though. How do we fix what we have?
0: So so I, I think it's I think it's got to be you know as as it is a multi pronged issue it also has to be a multi pronged approach so we look at the computer itself and partnering with Malwarebytes Malwarebytes has has been incredibly generous with licenses for the Malwarebytes program that we load through we load on the computers that go through our network and then and that are offered to um, those that have applied for and qualify for a free or low-cost computer through um, Digitunity and our network. We also look at education, right? So technical support and technical training that's happening at the point where those organizations are providing the computers to the individual those refurbished and reused computers that came out of either corporate or individual homes that have been donated and then repurposed and and put back out to the family or the 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 immigrant um, that is trying to you know get a new job or upskill et cetera and and technical support digital skills training. And that includes awareness building about how to be safe online, as well as, you know, point and click and here's what a browser is, et cetera. So, so it's it's really a multi-pronged approach that both um, Digitunity works with and through our network that is, that is touching the individuals and training them with these types of programs and support. So that's what we are doing.
1: I thought it was interesting. How the solutions you were talking about were they were solutions that focused on a large group of people doing things that help other people. And so you know by that I mean, look, it's not just giving devices, it's making those devices secure uh, and you know when you secure folks, you can help prevent some types of scams from happening. you can you can increase user education and awareness. I think on the on the really broad issue of of again, why is the internet as unequal and as unfair as it is for women. I kind of go back to that that idea where when rolling out a product, if you don't have that lived experience, how are you going to know? And that's absolutely true, right? And so I kind of go back to like, well, let's hire more diverse teams. Let's have more diverse product teams uh, building things so that someone can say, actually, this raises some red flags for X, Y, and Z. And right, there's no perfect way to do that. There's no perfect way to say, hey, like, What has your experience been with cyber stalking? Because, Lord, no, companies can't ask that. They shouldn't ask that. I'm against that, right? Um, There are private things that people have been through. But again, I think just having more diverse teams, you've got a better chance of that happening than having non-diverse teams. And, And that just means, again, just people from different parts of the world, people of different genders, people of different age ranges, right? People are experiencing different cyber threats based on how young or how old they are. All of these apply, And what I'm getting at here is that a lot of this is the solution is a lot of committed folks in their expertise doing what they can to overcome bad behavior from other folks. Because I don't think there's a lot of us who think, oh, let's just teach bad actors to not be bad actors. We're not there. You know, like in a non-gendered sense, in just talking about, at you know, like at Malwarebytes, talking about like cybersecurity threats, talking about things like ransomware, you're not going to teach ransomware actors to stop deploying ransomware. Like that's what they do. And again, I think it's important to also say that, you know, a lot of this stuff happens, but there are more than enough of us to help protect people from those things happening. Um, There are more than enough of us so that those things should not be the norm.
0: Just to, to piggyback on something you said a, a few moments ago when you were talking about the value of diversity in, in design, in corporate America, in the neighborhoods and the places. If folks are interested in understanding a little bit more about how it's impacting how the the computer, the digital divide, the lack of computers is impacting you in your neighborhood, your local neighborhood, state, et cetera, we have also been working with and will continue to work with Tableau through their Racial Data Equity Hub and our technology gap map, which is on our website, but it's also part of the Racial Data Equity Hub is is a first step in mapping out what communities by some of the demographics you talked about, by race, by income by location as to where the digital divide lives today which focuses on our work but also focuses on on some of those other incredibly important factors that really inform how we move forward, what kind of technical support needs to be done, what kind of languages need to be translated into, etc. So if folks are interested in kind of taking a quick peek at to how is things in my city or state in terms of who's got a computer and who doesn't, I would certainly encourage you to go out and take a look at our technology gap map and see how things are things are looking in your in your neck of the woods.
1: Yeah, I recommend that too. I've spent a lot of time on that website. I have looked at it. I've just gone through it. It is exciting. It is it is good to look at. It's good to just kind of understand it. So yeah, I definitely recommend folks do that as well. And Sue, that's all I had for today. So I just wanted to thank you again for being on today's show.
0: My pleasure. And again, it is it is a delight. Thank your listenership for sticking with us. And anyone who's listening and stayed on here has a heart for for really a huge problem and I salute them and if there's any interest they can reach out to you to Digitunity to Malwarebytes if if you're looking at all in how do I get involved in helping we are delighted to to give you you know options on how you might be able to support yourself support this cause nationally and locally. So I just had to put my plug in there. Digitunity, I'm sure you'll you'll have information on us. But if you're interested at all in in closing the digital divide at scale, we would be delighted to chat with you.
1: To our listeners at home, if you are interested in learning more about the digital divide, you can visit Digitunity at digitunity.org. And you can view that map that Sue and I spoke about. It's at digitunity.org slash the hyphen issue. As always, we will talk to you again in two weeks. Our next episode will be about why Mac computers are obviously the best. (laughs) Or are they? Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at www.blog.mauerbytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.